Uh, so, as you know, we're in this series on Jesus stories. Uh, this last week, we were to read chapters 15 and 16, and then this next week, we're reading chapters 17 and 18. So I want to encourage you to take some time this week to, to read those chapters. And the reason why we are looking at Jesus' stories and walking through Luke is because we are disciples of Jesus, and a disciple of Jesus wants to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus does. So if that's what we want to do, then we should learn from Jesus. And this week there was a number of parables, and sometimes when we read parables, parables can kind of seem confusing. And so before we dive into some things, I want to give us some kind of some tips on when we look at parables, and maybe, maybe uh, some ways to help us learn how to read uh, parables. And so the first little bit is just going to be some, basically a little bit of teaching. Here's some practical steps when you're reading parables or any, any stories that Jesus is telling. The first thing is recognize that context is king. And what we mean by that is that the Bible was written for us, not to us. So the Bible was written to Luke wrote to the people of that time, to the people, in the beginning of Luke, remember it talks about, he, he says, oh Theophilus, he, he writes it for Theophilus, there's a person, now whether that's actual person or a type of person um, is debated, but even Paul and Peter and John and Matthew and all the others that wrote, they wrote to the people of their time. The message is for us. But we get our meaning from finding out what the author was saying to the people he was writing to. Jesus often used parables to tell about his kingdom. So we, we are uh, part of his kingdom as disciples. Um, when Jesus died and rose again, he ushered in his kingdom. Yes, there is this sense of it's a kingdom that's now but not yet, meaning we don't experience the fullness of that kingdom and won't until Christ comes again. But the message here, parables often are, are describing um, the kingdom. Parables are part of the narrative genre, meaning it's, it's a story. And so we need to read it as a story. It's not a list of facts. It's a story. So look at it like a story. Um, Jesus often, through parables and riddles, Jesus would make these bold statements. Often, Jesus makes these just ginormous statements. And the reason why he does it is kind of to shake us up and get us think. Sometimes it's stuff that we don't fully grasp. Like when, when we read two weeks ago, the cost of being a disciple, uh, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't be a disciple. Well, really? i got to hate my parents? Well, again, exaggerate. Jesus is giving some bold things. So often, through a parable, he makes this bold statement. And so what we need to figure out is what is the point that Jesus is making in that bold statement? It's good for us to view parables like a storehouse of treasure that needs to be discovered. Rather than be fearful of parables or, uh, or you know, any of that kind of thing, let's, let's look at them and go, okay, what treasure, what seed of truth does Jesus have for us today? Often, a parable has one point. 
And so it's the key is to finding out what is that one point. Now, sometimes there's other things that we can gather from a parable, sure. But usually when Jesus is giving a parable, he's got one point. And if we go back to context, he's talking to a certain group of people in a certain time, and there's certain events that are happening right at that moment, and Jesus is addressing those points. So as we dive into parables, there's some key questions that we need to ask. First question is, who is Jesus talking to? Usually, or or a lot of times, you won't find it right at the parable. You might have to read a few verses ahead of time to find out who Jesus is talking to. What is Jesus talking about? What's going on in that situation? And out of that, knowing what's going on and what Jesus is talking about, it'll help us find that one thing that is what Jesus is trying to, to get it across. Remember, um, our, the meaning is found in who Jesus is talking to and what he's trying to get across to those people. And then once we discover that, then we can take a look and how does that apply to our life. So an example would be a couple weeks ago when we were reading through um, Luke 14. In 14... Chapter 14, verse 1, Luke says, One Sabbath, when he went out to dine at the house of a prominent Pharisee, they, the Pharisees, were watching him carefully. So we could pick up from there that it's a Sabbath. Jesus is dining at a prominent Pharisee's house, and the Pharisees are watching him, trying to to trip him up. And so the stories that Jesus tells after that are shaped by that. And it's in chapter 14 where Jesus talks about the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet and the cost of being a discipleship. Yes, no wonder Jesus talks about those right there because he's at a feast himself. So it makes sense. He's at a banquet being held by a prominent Pharisee, so... Luke puts in there, hey, this is what Jesus is going to talk about. So then there are some questions that we can ask while we are reading a parable. Here's how we can, some questions we can ask to help us find clues. First is, who are the two or three main characters? And as we're looking at those characters, do they represent a people group? They don't all, always do that, but... Sometimes they do. So who are the two or three main characters? What is being said by whom? We talked about that a little bit earlier. Whom or what has the most space? So if the parable is, let's say, ten verses long, and there's one character that has five of those verses, and the other character or two only has a verse, pay attention to that one that has five verses. There's, there, there's a reason why that person is getting all of the, the space. And then what occurs at the end? Is there a punchline or is there a moral to the story? A lot of times that last sentence, there's something that brings it all together and points it out. So these are just some things for us to think about as we are going through parables. And there are a number of parables in chapters 15 and 16. So let's look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. 
I'm going to throw it up on the screen. You can turn to your Bible also, but here's what Luke says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, now this is not a rhetorical question. I'm wanting a response. Who is in this story so far? Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law. And Jesus, yes, right? Jesus might be a main character there, right? Um, what is being talked about so far? What is going on so far? Pharisees are muttering, okay? They're muttering. And what are they muttering about? Jesus and Jesus doing what? Eating with sitters. God forbid that Jesus would do that. So the tax collectors and the sinners are all gathered around Jesus and they're learning from Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers are off to the side and they're muttering, they're judging Jesus because he's eating with sinners. This is our context This is our backdrop. This is what we need to pay attention to as we look at the next few parables that are listed. So we're going to do things all really different right now. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Luke 15, 3. I'm not going to put it up there. There's a Bible in the pew if you don't have one. Luke 15, 3. These are the questions that we said we ask. Okay, we kind of looked at some of them already, but here's what I want you to do for the next few minutes. The people you are sitting around, read Luke 15, 3 through 7, and if you're online watching this, you can do this. Grab your Bible, open to Luke 15, 3 through 7, and I want you to read, and with the people that are near you, respond to these questions. Who are the main characters? We kind of already said that, or in this parable... Um, who are the main characters in the parables? What is being said? What or whom has the most space? What occurs at the end? Is there a punchline? So I'm going to. It's a short parable. I'm only. And it's a familiar parable. I'm only going to give you about three or four minutes. But read it and respond to those questions. And then afterwards, I'm going to ask for responses. So ready, go. And again, if you're online, just do this. Right there, we'll be back in about three, four minutes. All righty, let's draw it back in here. So again, get some people to throw out. Who are the main characters in this parable? A shepherd, right? And a sheep, right? And neighbors. Good. Um, What's being communicated? Who says what? And what do they say? Rejoicing. What are we rejoicing about? Yes, the sheep was found. Right? The shepherd left everything, the other 99, to go find the one. Okay? Okay? 
What, and this is kind of what Jen says, but what occurs at the end? What's the punchline? Yeah, he's talking about sinners. Yep, going back to the first, um, the first sentence in the in or the first verse in in chapter fifteen. He's talking about sinners being lost. What's the punchline? What's the last thing that Jesus says in the parable? One matters. Yes. Yeah, leave them all. Go after the one. There is more what? In heaven for what? There, that, that, there's, your, there's your punchline. There's your big statement by Jesus. He's, he's like, okay, you think that all you righteous people who don't need to repent, that heaven is rejoicing over you. Well, yes, heaven is, but... There's more rejoicing when one repents. So now we go on. In the next parable, same thing. It's a parable of the lost coin. Same kind of thing, just a different story. This a, a woman loses a coin and she turns about everything to find the coin. Again, rejoicing in heaven because the one lost is found. Then we have the story of the prodigal son. That's what we call it, the prodigal son. Many think it should be called the story of the eldest son because of the punchline at the end of the parable. This is a longer parable and we're not going to go into it. Most of us know the parable pretty well. What Jesus, again, He's talking about Pharisees who are grumbling because he's with sinners and tax collectors. The end of the story, the eldest son does what? Grumbles because the father throws a party for the lost son who was found. And the father says, hey, everything I've given you, you, you have. So Pharisees or Israelites... You, you've received your inheritance. That's not being taken away. But the sinners have been found, so it's time to throw a party. You see how knowing the context maybe gives us a better feel and understanding for what's going on. Well, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16 real quick because this is called the parable of the dishonest manager which I think for most of us probably gets us all wonkied. That's my term. Because here is a parable um, about a manager who does something shrewd and dishonest. And as we read through the story, we see that in essence, Jesus is celebrating the dishonest move by the shrewd manager. Now, again, we got to come back to our key introductory questions. Who is Jesus talking to? What is he talking about? What is going on? For this, we have to go back to 15.1. This is part of this Jesus is talking, who is he? he's with the sinners and the tax collectors, 
and the Pharisees are grumbling. So that's our context for this parable. Okay? So Jesus is, but in, uh, in Luke 16, 1, it says, Jesus tells his disciples there was a rich man who was a manager was accused of wasting his possessions. But notice here, Jesus turns to his disciples. It's like in the first, in chapter 15, he's talking to the Pharisees and his disciples. He's talking to everybody, talking about the lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son. And here, it's like all of a sudden, he just kind of zeroes in on his disciples, and he's got a lesson specifically for his disciples. And so this is something that we need to pay attention to. But it is a continuation of the lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son parable process. So, again, what are the questions we need to ask? Who are the main characters? What is being said? Whom has the most space? What occurs at the end? Now, I'm going to give you a little contextual help that will help us understand this passage, this parable, that much better. First, who are the main characters in this? It's a rich man, it's a manager, and it is the master's debtors, those that owed stuff. Those are the three main characters. Often, when Jesus tells a parable, has a rich manager or a master, that is usually associated with God. When there is a manager or someone who messes up, often that means Pharisees or Israelites. Debtors often mean sinners. So as we read this parable, let's, let's associate those three with um, the three in the story. So the rich man, let's, let's make that association because the disciples would have heard these kind of stories before, and they would kind of put this stuff together. Here's some other things that uh, the disciples would have known that we wouldn't know because it's a different culture. First of all, in Jewish law, you are not allowed to charge interest when somebody borrows money from you. That's Jewish law. So already, when they hear this story about... Charging interest, they're like, what? That goes against Jewish law. Okay, so that's a contextual thing that will help us as we move forward. Second, often, like we do as humans, we try to find loopholes in laws. So one of the ways to find a loophole was to actually use commodities like wheat or olive oil in this borrowing process. Because you can add to the price of the commodity as interest, but not really call it interest, making it okay. Notice all my quotes. Third thing that our disciples would know, and we kind of know this, managers would often charge interest without telling their master about that interest to pad their pockets. We see this with tax collectors in the story of Zacchaeus. He, he padded stuff. He, he took advantage of people to make himself more rich. So 
often it was a way for a manager to make extra money. So as we read this story, that will help us be more like one of the disciples and get some of this information. So the rich man, we're going to associate with God. The manager, the Pharisees or the Israelites, the debtors are those who are sinners, and the managers are charging interest that maybe they're not supposed to. So let's, let's read. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'm just going to read from uh, the NIV. And I, and I want you just to gather from this story. Hear this story happen. First one, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So Jesus, again, he's talking to his disciples, um, the manager, Pharisees, wasting possessions. So the question maybe that should come to our mind is, how did the Pharisees mismanage the rich man or God's wealth? That's a question we need to ask. Well, Israel was blessed to be a blessing, right? They were to be a light to the world. The Pharisees used that blessing to control people and to pad their own pockets. They were more concerned about position and power and wealth. So maybe the Pharisees mismanaged God's blessing and used it for themselves. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. Hear the pride in there. I'm too good to do any of that. Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it out to 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he said. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. Now, just, just so you know, those amounts are like one or two years worth of salary amounts. So even if there's an deduction, a deduction, these people still owe a ton of money. It's not like all of a sudden they're free, okay? It, they still owe a lot. So maybe the picture we're getting here is that the manager is deducting what he charged them above and beyond what the owner had. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but that's something that you can maybe play into this. How did the Pharisees, in essence, reduce the sin of their debt? One of the commentators I read, which was interesting, is he said that if you think about it, the Pharisees capitulated to the Romans. They, 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 they no longer followed the master, God. They were under, to protect their position, their power and wealth, they did whatever the Romans said they should do, and then they passed that burden on to the people. In verse 8, Then the master commended the disadvantaged manager because he had acted shrewdly. This is where we get you know, wonked out a little bit. 
For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will become, be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, what we need to understand is that often parables are not moral teachings. So this isn't a moral teaching on how we should use money or not use money. It is more about how we use the blessing of God, what in ways God has blessed us. And as we talked about the Israelites, God blessed the Israelites by choosing them and they were to be a blessing to the world, a light to the world. In this parable, what is important to the kingdom of God, as we learn from our other parables, is that lost people or sinners mattered to God. And so... How then do we use the blessing of God? We celebrated it today with communion. I have been saved. I am no longer lost. I am found. I am blessed by God. Do I use that blessing for myself? Or do I use that blessing for lost people? And what Jesus is pointing out is that at least the people of this world are shrewd enough to understand what you use your blessing for, your wealth. At least they understand to use their wealth in a way that benefits them. What if we were shrewd enough to use the blessing of God for others? How does that reflect the kingdom of God? It reflects it exactly. The kingdom of God is about generosity. It's about reaching the lost. It's not about building up me. It's about building God's kingdom. Then Jesus says in verse 10, and this is his response to the parable, he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, you will be... you. Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trusted with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Because they knew that Jesus was talking at them. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Again, the Pharisees valued position, power, and money. They mismanaged God's blessing for themselves, and God took that away. And now He has given it to us. He has blessed us us. And so are you trustworthy? Are you going to use the blessing of God for others, for the lost, for the sinner, or are you going to use it for yourself? Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am going to give you everything. Don't be like the Pharisees. Do not use my blessing for yourself. Use it to find the lost. And thankfully, the disciples got it. And when we read Acts, we see it. 
Acts 2, 47. And God added to their number daily those being saved. What was happening in the verses before that? They were giving and sharing amongst each other. The disciples went into the world and proclaimed the gospel. They gave up everything and proclaimed the gospel. And in a number of places throughout Acts, you see God adding to their number those being saved. So the conclusion for us today is this. There's a hard question that we need to ask ourselves. If I'm a disciple, and if lost people are that important to Jesus, are lost people important to me? Do I intentionally pray for lost people each day? Do I intentionally engage in conversations with lost people on a regular basis? Have I intentionally invited a lost person to my house for dinner? These aren't questions about shame or to make you feel bad. They are questions of conviction. Because we know, what does Jesus do? Jesus brings conviction. He does point out the areas that we've gotten off track, and he says, hey, come back, and this is what's important. And that's what he's doing in this chapter. He is saying, I hung out with sinners and tax collectors because lost people are important to me. And you Pharisees who had it all, you may sneer at me and grumble at me, But my priority is lost people. And for me, as a follower of Jesus, if I want to be like Jesus, then lost people need to matter to me. So what do we do with this? I participated in some teaching a while ago on doing outreach and what that looks like. And one of the things they talked about is an outreach temperature. Where is your outreach temperature? They use a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being, uh, I don't think of lost people at all. 10 being, I think of lost people all the time. I'm praying for lost people. I'm engaged in trying to uh, build relationships. with. It's on my mind all the time. And so the question is, where are you on that? On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at? Now, it isn't about where you are at now. It's what are you willing to do to move one degree? If you say to yourself, honestly, I'm a two. <laughs> I, I, I don't think about lost people that hardly at all. I, I'm a two. Great. Thank you for being honest. Don't feel ashamed about that. My question for you is... What is one thing you can do to get yourself to a three? That's all. Don't worry about being a ten. There's nobody that's really a ten. Don't worry about being a nine or eight. Just what do I do to make one step towards? And the reason why we do that is because lost people matter to Jesus. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm his disciple. Lost people need to matter to me. Let's pray.
Thanks, Jesus. That lost people matter to you, because as we have talked about already, we were lost. I pray that um, you would give us a hunger for lost people, a desire for lost people. Whatever that looks like in you, Jesus, fill us to overflowing with that. I pray that we would be a church and a people that we're intentional about being with lost people and praying for lost people, loving lost people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand for the benediction. Hold your hands out like this to receive the benediction. Now I pray that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you may know the hope that he's called you to, that you may know the glorious inheritance that you have with all the saints, and that you may know his incredibly great power for us who believe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And all God's people said, Go in peace.